And uh, this morning we now have the privilege of opening God's Word together, and so before we do so, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you on this Christmas Eve, and we thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and our brokenness, but that you came to rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have revealed yourself, that you have revealed your plan of salvation. And I pray this morning as we open your holy and inspired word, that you would please give us open minds and humble hearts, that you would help us to see Jesus in fresh and new ways, that our hearts might worship him on this Christmas. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, people in any age, in any place, are hungry for hope. Hope is something that we all live upon, that we all need in order to uh, continue to survive. It is what keeps us going. And yet it's easy for people in this broken and fallen world to lose hope. It's easy for people to look at the world, the events going on around the globe or even in our own country, and they can struggle to find hope. And maybe you're in that place this morning. Between natural disasters, wars, and contagious diseases, people are forced to ask, what can give them hope for the future of the world? What can give them hope for the days that are yet to come? But for others, the question about hope is not just looking out there to the events around the globe, but it's a question that's much more personal. It's going to be a question that comes very close to home. There's other troubles, personal troubles, that can rob our hope too. Maybe it's a broken relationship with a family member or a friend. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Someone taken from us. Or maybe it could be a series of poor choices that we ourselves have made and we find ourselves in a position wondering how we can climb out of this hole. Where can we find hope? Whatever the case, it's easy for humanity to be in a place that struggles to find hope. This lack of hope, I believe, is also seen in the troubling rates of suicide that we see in this country. For the data we have available from 2021, 12.3 million people in the U.S. thought seriously about taking their life. Three and a half million made a plan to do so, and 1.7 attempted, and 48,000 were tragically successful. These are these stats reinforce that people are hungry for real, true, and lasting hope. And this goes for all of us here this morning. You and I, we need hope. We need to be able to smile upon the future. We need to be able to look to the days that are yet to come and to be able to have confidence in what will come. So I ask you this morning, are you hungry for hope? Are you struggling maybe to find reasons to be hopeful for the future? Be hopeful about your future? Or maybe hopeful about your children and grandchildren's future? On this Christmas Eve, 
I want us to take this opportunity that we have to open God's Word, and I want to show you that hope is available to each and every one of us this morning. Hope is available for you today. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, hope is possible. You can have hope today. And what the Bible shows us is that we can have hope by trusting in the promises of God, promises that are centered on Jesus Christ. And since that first Christmas, hope is not found in anything this world can produce. Hope is not found in a product. Hope is not found in a government or a world leader. Hope is not found in an ideology. Hope is found in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want us to begin, if you could open your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can find it on the, in, uh, in the pew Bible in front of you. And we'll just begin here. We're going to be all over the Scriptures this morning, but I just want to draw your attention to one verse here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as a foundation for what we'll be looking at this morning. Our theme for our Advent, for our church here, Photo Bible Church, this Advent season has been a thrill of hope. This line from the Christmas carol that reminds us that in the Christmas story that hope burst on the scene in a new way. That there was a thrill that entered into humanity for which we could find hope in the midst of our darkness and our brokenness. And that is found exclusively in the person of Christ. And Paul highlights that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to show you here in this first verse of this book. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Here, Paul explicitly states that Jesus Christ is our hope, and he moves on to the rest of his argument in his book, but here he founds it upon the reality and highlights the fact that our hope is found in none other than Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to see this morning. Our hope that we have in him is not a pipe dream. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a fairy based on a fairy tale. It's not just something that we take psychologically to make us feel better. Hope in Christ is real and is lasting. Hope in Christ is able to weather and endure anything this world has to offer. It can endure any tragedy. It is a light that can shine in any darkness. It's a treasure that nothing this world can touch or steal. And so this morning, I want to just share with you three simple steps that we each need to take in order to have hope this Christmas. Three steps that you can take today to find hope in Christ this Christmas. If you're hungry for hope, I want to lead you through these simple steps that the Scriptures give us for how we can have hope. And the first step in order for you and I to be able to have hope in Jesus is, number one, you need to recognize your hopeless situation without Christ. You need to recognize your hopeless situation without Christ. Now, stick with me. You might go, oh, this is kind of a, a dour note to begin on, but, but we must begin here if we're going to be able to find hope in Jesus this morning. The Bible makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, 
that all people are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Friends, this is the statement, the declaration of the Bible for all people everywhere, no matter the society, no matter the culture, is that everyone has been separated from Christ and have no hope without God. All of humanity is without hope in the world. It doesn't matter, again, the ethnicity, the nationality, or the, the economic class, whether male or female, whether rich or poor. All people, spiritually, are hopeless without Jesus. Now, why are they without hope? It's because of this simple fact, that death awaits us all. Death awaits us all. Death is indiscriminate. It comes to every single person. The, the rate of death is 100%. There is none of us that can escape it. And there might be, there are billionaires right now who are trying to develop technology in order to skirt death, in order to prolong their life, to be able to fight against this very reality, but it's impossible. Death is what faces each one of us. And therefore, it's unavoidable. There's nothing that we can do to stop it. And in that reality, the fact that death is coming for each one of us, we recognize that it ends the, the life that we have here. The family, the relationships, the good things that we have, all of that come to an end in death. Nothing ultimately lasts. All good things come to an end. But what also makes us without hope is the fact that death, the physical cessation of life, is not the, the very end. We continue to exist after death. It's at that point that we all must face a reckoning for how you and I have lived. The Bible calls this judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says that it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Now we on our own don't like that. We don't want to be held accountable. We don't want there to be a reckoning. We want to be able to live how we want to live. We want there to be no rules. We want to be, there to be no authority over us. We want to set the agenda for our lives. But friends, we didn't create ourselves. God Almighty is the one that created us, the Lord of heaven and earth, and He's the one to whom we are accountable to. Oh, sure, we might try to hide from Him. We might try to dodge Him. But the Scriptures are clear that we can't hide. Hebrews chapter 13, or 4, verse 13, rather, says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is a reality that every one of us must face. Now, most people believe that they kind of assuage their fears of this death and of this judgment, this reality of what's coming by believing that their good deeds are going to weigh out, weigh their, out their, outweigh their bad. That, well, I've been a, a pretty good person, and if God really kind of looks at an objective sense of my life and see that, well, I've been mostly a, a good person over mostly a bad person, or I'm not as bad as those people over there, we can always find someone who's worse than us. But the Bible makes it clear that such a position is untenable. Such a position should not give us any hope for that future judgment day. Listen to how the Bible describes each one of us in our own goodness. Romans chapter 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is a pretty bleak statement. It's one that we, you and I, we each need to reckon with. Because you see, the Bible's standard is perfection. The Bible's standard is that you and I have a perfectly clean record, not even one ounce of sin, not even one ounce of failure. And in order to, uh, our response often to this is, uh, but come on, nobody's perfect. I mean, we all have that intrinsically in us. We recognize that, that none of us really meet a standard of perfection. We all are flawed at some level. And with this, we can think that God might grade on a curve, but the reality is the standard is perfection. And that's precisely the point is that none of us are perfect. All of us are flawed. All of us are sinners. And because we're sinners, the Bible says we deserve to die. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. We have sinned, and therefore the just wages we deserve when we go to the payment office is we get death. That is what we deserve. Not only physical death, as we've already talked about, but what the Bible calls spiritual death or the second death. This is death, not just the cessation of life on this planet, but it refers to the life after this one. It refers to death in the fires of hell where the wrath of God will rightly and justly punish us. You see, God is a righteous God. His standard is perfectly righteous and holy. He cannot allow, justly allow, sinners to go free. Before the bar of His justice, all sinners must be punished for their rebellion against Him. It's like if there was a, a judge in the courtroom and, and a murderer came upon the stand and he simply said, you know what, I'm just going to forgive your murder and let you go free. And we'd all say, what are you doing? You're a corrupt judge. You're not a just judge. That murderer needs to pay for what he has done. And the same is true for us in God's economy. God is just and holy, and we all fall short of that, and therefore we must rightly pay for our sins. And so we all face a certain judgment and death for all of eternity. And this is why the Bible says that without Christ, all humanity is without hope. Our future is grim. Ultimately, as we keep looking out into the future, we have nothing to look forward to on our own. Everything good in this life will end, and then we will be faced with having to stand spiritually before God, our judge. And so, as we begin on this first step this morning, I want to ask you, do you recognize that on your own, everything else stripped away, just you before Almighty God, that you have no hope apart from Christ? Do you see that trusting in your own goodness, you have no eternal future? Your future, rather, is one of judgment and death. Now, my goal this, on this Christmas Eve is not to discourage you, but ultimately to lift your spirits, to point your eyes to the greatest hope that we have. But in order for us to get there, we need to recognize what our condition is because we're never going to be forced to look to Jesus if we don't recognize our desperate need for Him. We must recognize how hopeless our situation is. Consider if 
I had a magical cure for cancer. A simple pill you could take and the cancer would be eradicated. Would you take that pill if you didn't know that you had cancer, if you didn't realize you had cancer, if you didn't accept the fact that you had cancer? No, you'd say that, that, that solution, that antidote isn't for me because, you see, I don't have a problem. I don't have that problem that pill addresses. You need to accept the diagnosis before you can accept the antidote. Christ will not be your hope until you see that you're hopeless without him. And so if you want to have a hope that cannot be lost, you must begin by recognizing your hopelessness without Jesus. But that's just the first step in order to find hope and have hope this Christmas. Let me lead you now to the second step that we must take in order to find hope in Christ. And that is, number two, you need to realize how Jesus accomplished salvation. Like I said at the beginning, hope is a person. Hope is found in Jesus Christ. And it's only because of what he did that you and I can have hope. Fundamentally, Jesus is our hope because Jesus is the only Savior of mankind. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 1, the part of the narrative of the birth of Christ, where the angel is speaking to Joseph and he reveals what the name of Jesus is going to be and he says, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Friends, this was the mission that was announced about Jesus before he was even born. Jesus Christ came into this world, Emmanuel came to be born on this earth in order to save his people from their sins. Paul emphasized this very reality in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners, a simple statement of the mission of Jesus Christ in which he came to earth. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate a, the birth of a baby and who is laid in a manger. But we celebrate that baby because of what he went on to do. We celebrate that baby because of what he came to do upon this earth. He came to rescue us from the wrath to come. He came to save sinners from the judgment that they deserve for their sin. Well, how did Jesus do this? How did he accomplish this mission of saving sinners that the angel announces what he came here to do? Let me show you four ways that he accomplished this salvation. The first way is he identified with sinners. He identified with sinners. Jesus Christ existed in eternity past with his Father. The Christmas story is fundamentally about how he didn't remain in heaven, right? Jesus departed the glories of heaven and he came to earth and he took on flesh. And this is what we call the incarnation. He incarnated, he took on human flesh, which is exactly what John describes in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the Word, another name for Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when He did this, He entered the human race in a normal way. He didn't suddenly just, boom, just like show up magically. Jesus was born. 
Again, we sing that in so many Christmas carols. We celebrate that. We see the, the nativity scenes. We, we see the born reality. And yet this is the amazing thing that God became human flesh and he did it through being born. The way that all of us enter the human race. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Jesus was born. And this is what we read. Flip over with me to Luke chapter 2. We already read this this morning. This narrative is so simple. We've heard it repeated so many times. And yet, this is, it, it's, it's almost an underwhelming narrative that describes the amazing reality that the Son of God was born. It says, verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Friends, Jesus identified with you and me. He was born just like any other human. He came as a baby. He lived a normal human life. All of the pain and difficulty he experienced, yet without sin, the Bible says. And so in this sense, the life of Jesus was normal. It was normal. If we would have seen him, it would have been like looking at the person next to you. It would have been looking like the, 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 another human upon this planet. But there's another sense in which his birth was not normal, right? His birth was unique. It was abnormal because his mother was a virgin. She conceived her child not by a human man, but by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Luke chapter 1. And so Jesus didn't have a human biological father like we do. And this is what we call the miracle of the virgin birth. And this miracle of the virgin birth makes the point that humanity on its own is not and was not able to produce a savior by itself. If we, apart from God's action, were to try to produce a savior that could save us from our sins, it would be impossible. Because every single human that was born is laden with their own sin. We carry the sin of Adam. We are all guilty before Almighty God. None of us could save each other. We all need to pay for our own sins. And so it goes on down through the centuries. And that is the stream of humanity. Unless God enters in. In the virgin birth, God did exactly that. He, through the power of the Holy Spirit, conceived in the womb of Mary a son. God had to step in to provide a Savior. And so, in Jesus, he was both truly man and truly God. How does that work? Our minds blow at that, the two natures of his humanity and his divinity coming together. And yet, without those two natures, we don't have a Savior, friends. Without this reality, we don't have one who can save us. And so, Jesus alone is the one who's able to bridge the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God. Jesus is the lone mediator between God and man. 
He bridged heaven and earth. You see, it's only a Savior who's truly man that's able to take our place. If he was only kind of like a person or only like looked like a person, he wouldn't truly represent us. He wouldn't truly take our place. And so we need a Savior who's holy and truly man, but we also need a Savior who's truly God because he's got to bear the wrath of Almighty God upon him. He's got to pay for the sins of humanity, and that's not going to be possible by only a human We need one who is truly man and truly God, and that was found in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus first saved sinners by identifying with sinners, but there's a second way that he did this, and that was he died for sinners. He died for sinners. In 33 AD, Jesus was nailed to a cross outside Jerusalem. He was mocked and derided, and there on the cross, the Bible says that the Father in heaven crushed his son. The sins of his people were placed on Jesus, and they were paid for by his own precious blood. This is the amazing reality of the gospel. The good news that that comes to us is that Jesus took our place upon the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the righteous No, he died for the ungodly. This is the amazing reality that the ungodly, the sinners, Christ died for them. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the place of sinners. He paid the penalty that we deserved. And it's there, as he died upon the cross, and the, the, those who observed it that day would have seen simply a man who was bloodied and bruised, bleeding out upon a Roman cross, and yet something much more significant than just a man losing his life was taking place that day. The Bible says that there's wrath of God that is reserved for Sinners. And it describes it like a chalice of, or a cup of wine. And it says that, that, is in, that God will pour that out upon sinners. But there upon the cross, that wrath was poured out upon Jesus. And Jesus didn't just drink half that cup. Jesus drank it all. So that he could say there upon the cross, it is finished. It's done. The sins are paid for. There's nothing else that needs to be done. He drank it to the last dregs. And folks, it's here in the cross of Christ that we see most clearly displayed the love of God for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means the sacrifice, the substitute, the atonement, the the wrath-bearing substitute. How do we see the love of God for us? How do we know that God loves us? It's because it was displayed in the giving of his son. 
This is why we talk about the gift of love that was given, that we celebrate at Christmas time. Not just because a baby was given to us, but because a Savior was given to us. A Savior who was able to go and pay for our sins with his own blood. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says the same thing. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is the amazing reality. God did not look upon us as humanity and see our loveliness, see our beauty. For there was nothing to turn God's eye towards us. As we said, we are sinners. We are not righteous at all. There is nothing that we have that is, is, is commendable on our own. And yet, at that very moment, because of that, that Christ came to die for us. It's there in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our unloveliness, that Christ went to the cross for us. Not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. To redeem us, a people for himself. And so through the cross of Christ, sin is atoned for and mankind is reconciled to God. We have our relationship restored with our creator because of what he did on our behalf. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope today because he paid for our sins, redeemed us from sin's bondage, and reconciled us to God. But Jesus didn't remain dead. He went to the cross and he did die upon that cross. But there's a third way in which he accomplished salvation, and that is, thirdly, he defeated death. He defeated death. The Bible says that after he was crucified, he was buried in the grave. In fact, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This statement is very clearly identified as fundamental to the gospel message. Jesus' death and his burial. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. In verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Fundamental to the message of the gospel and to what Jesus did is that not only did he die upon the cross, but he was buried in the grave. The graves in the first century were not a, uh, a hole in the ground, six foot under, so to speak, as we talk of now, they were caves in which they were, uh, a stone was rolled in front of these stone caves, and the corpses were then laid in these caves after being wrapped in burial cloths. And so the Bible says, as we just read, that after three days, Jesus rose from the grave. He didn't stay dead, he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose up. And this is the amazing claim of Christianity that the leader of our faith, the one that we follow, the, one, the teachings that we listen to, is not a dead leader. We follow a risen Savior. We follow Jesus who now lives forevermore. This is what the Scriptures make abundantly clear. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 
Peter, there on the day of Pentecost, preaching, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was not just a miracle worker or even a martyr for his cause. Jesus proved himself to be the Son of God in his resurrection, an identifiable, a publicly witnessed event that we must come to grips with. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the Son of God in his resurrection. You see, when he came back to life, it wasn't just this thing that he, he did and then instantly went to heaven. No, he came back to life. He resurrected. He took on a glorified body, and then he appeared to many people. We read that already in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to many people. It says even to 500 brothers at one time. This was not a small group of folks. Peter emphasized this as well in Acts chapter 10 where he says this, They put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is the amazing proof that we're not following cleverly devised myths. We follow the truth, the affirmation of the resurrected Lord. The, the witnesses who saw it were able to give testimony to it. And friends, it's in the resurrection that we see that death does not have the last word. We saw earlier that each one of us deserved death. We deserve to be punished. We deserve the right wrath of God upon each one of our heads. But here in the resurrection, we see that death, the great enemy, was defeated through Christ's death and resurrection. After he arose, he then ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so it's in Christ that our greatest enemy, death, was defeated. And this is why Jesus can be our hope. This is why he's my hope. And this is why he can be yours as well, is that he has defeated death once and for all. We can be rescued from death, not necessarily cessation of life on this, but the greater death, the second death that we spoke of. We can be rescued from the judgment that comes after death. And so you and I we don't have to despair. We don't have to despair about the end of life because Jesus has made a way for sinners to have eternal life with him. But there's one more way I want to highlight a way Jesus saves sinners. And that is, fourthly, he will return for them. He will return for them. He's identified with them, he's died for them, he's defeated death, and then he's going to return for his people. Jesus is not done with his earth. He's not done with his people. He will come back to make all things right. He will punish all evil. He will renew this planet so that death will be no, no more. And he's going to completely and finally save his people. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, Christ, having offered once to, been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And he, when he comes back, he will finish what he began. He will save his people. He will transform their bodies. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus and we are saved in him, 
We have new life, but we recognize our, our bodies still groan, don't they? They still groan under the weight of sin and suffering on this planet. But when he comes back, he's going to transform our bodies. We'll no longer feel sickness, suffering, or pain. We'll no longer battle sin. Our bodies will be glorified. Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so he's going to save his people, but he's also going to judge. Acts chapter 10, verse 42 says that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. He came in the first time, as we celebrate at Christmas, as the meek and the lowly Savior. But he's going to return the second time as a mighty and victorious king. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This judgment is all part of the process of making all things new. He's going to rid this planet of all the evil so that it once again can be a place where God dwells. We look forward to living in heaven for all of eternity, but we need to recognize that that heaven is not an ethereal place up there, but it's a renewed planet down here. It says, the Bible says it's a new heaven and earth. In fact, the end of the Bible says this in Revelation chapter 21. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so, friends, this is why Jesus is our only hope. He will come back to save. He will come back to redeem. He will come back to set all things right. This earth, this planet is not right. Sin and suffering pervades. But it will, will be made right once again. It will be restored when the power of Jesus comes back. And so we've seen the first step to having hope in Christ this Christmas is to see your hopelessness without him. But secondly, to, to see that Christ is the one who saves sinners. Well, there's a third and crucial step that we must take. Because it's not enough just to have these two steps. We must take it a step further. We, and that is, thirdly, you need to rely on Christ alone for your salvation. The third and final step for you to have hope in Christ is you must rely on Christ alone for your salvation. We, it is not enough for you and I just to know some facts, for us to know some things about Jesus. We've got to apply them personally in order for Christ to be our true hope. Humanity naturally looks to a bunch of different places for hope. They 
find ways to buoy their spirits and to keep them charged about the days ahead. And they look to all different alternatives for their spiritual security. But the core of all of them, the core of all of humanity's attempts to find hope in this world is a trusting in their own goodness, a trusting in their own righteousness. And this even goes for the irreligious, for the atheist or the agnostic. They trust their own reason to conclude that either God doesn't exist or we can't know whether He exists. They're trusting in themselves. Or take the devout of other religions or the devout of of other cults. They trust their own sincere efforts in those religions, in those religious systems in order to save themselves. That if they just do enough good things, if they, they, they jump through the right hoops and they follow the laws and the rules, that they're going to be able to be saved at whatever that salvation, whatever that heaven looks like to them. But the core of it all, it's a trust in their own works. And sadly, there are many who even are a part, would identify themselves with Christianity those who would claim to be Christians, those who do or have attended church, maybe even religiously, and yet they themselves are also trusting in their own works, believing that they're good church attendance, that the gifts they put in the offering plate, that the reading of their Bible, whatever the religious duty might be, is what gives them hope that they have a future. They're trusting in their own good deeds. And so it's easily easy to be mistaken on what we find our hope in for that great for that future judgment day. Thinking, as we said earlier, that our good can outweigh our bad, thinking that God can grade up on a curve, that we're not as bad as others, and so we can get off the hook. Well, the problem is that we all fall short of the standard, don't we? Consider the story of, of two men who went to the recruiting office in London to join a guard regiment. They both were very eager, desiring to be guardsmen. But you see, the standard height to be a guard was six feet. Now, one of the two men was taller than the other, but when they were both measured, they officially were disqualified, both of them. The shorter of the two measured only five feet, seven inches, and was far too short. But his companion measured five feet, 11 and a half inches. And even though he stretched as high as he could, he could not make it anymore. And his pleas to the the officers didn't avail. It mattered nothing that his father was also a guardsman, that he promised to be a good soldier, that he'd already memorized the drills and knew uh, all the army regulations by heart. He fell short of the standard. It was an objective standard, and he fell short. And friends, the same is true for each one of us. Some of us might be objectively better, doing some better things than other people, but the reality is, is that we all fall short of God's standard. We can stretch all that we want, but we're not going to reach it. And so I ask you this morning, where does your hope lie for meeting the standard? Again, all of us will have to face a reckoning one day. Where is your hope? When you look to the days ahead, the years ahead, when you look to eternity and beyond, what do, where do you find your hope? 
The Bible is clear that the only way for us to have ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. Our faith must be in Him and Him alone. Because you see, when we trust in Him, our sins are forgiven. Our record is cleaned. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so in that moment that we trust and we believe in Him, our our record is changed in the record books of heaven. Rather than seeing all of the sins that we have committed through our lives, instead, Jesus' perfect record is credited to our account. And so we then are seen as righteous. We are counted as righteous in Christ. This is why we can have hope for meeting Him on that future day. It's because he's promised that all who place their faith in him will be justified, will be declared righteous in him. When we believe in Jesus, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We are given a new heart. And we are ultimately saved from that wrath. When we stand before Jesus on that judgment day, and we can stand there and we can have hope to know that we will not be punished for our sins. Why? Because we've trusted and clung to Christ. This is why Jesus came into the world, friends, and why we celebrate the birth of Christ every Christmas. Why we celebrate that he came to Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, because it's there on that night that God gave us the greatest gift. He gave us hope. He gave us a way out of the prison of our own sin. He gave us a way that we can live eternally with Him. No doubt you've heard the wonderful truth that John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the truth that you need to hear this morning and that you need to act upon this morning. You see, how is it that we are guaranteed, how is it that we have the hope that we won't perish? This verse tells us it's by believing in Jesus. It's by trusting in Him. That is how we know we won't perish. That is how we know we will have eternal life. And so I ask you this morning, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you believed that his sacrifice was for you? Have you believed that he took the punishment that you deserved? Do you see the love of God displayed in the giving of his own son? Not only to come and be with us, as great as that is, but also to come and to sacrifice himself for us. To come and to be our substitute. And what it requires of each one of us is that we recognize our sin and that we we then repent, which means that we turn away from our sin. We turn the other way rather than pursuing our selfish ambitions and following our own lusts and our own flesh. We turn and go 180 degrees and instead we follow Jesus and we confess him as Lord. And we say that he sets the agenda for our lives and we give our lives to him. We saw earlier that Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on and it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God. This free gift is offered to all of you this Christmas, this Christmas Eve. This free gift 
of eternal life in Christ. But, but hear this. It doesn't come to you automatically this morning. Just because you're here and you hear the words doesn't mean this gift is yours. It requires that we repent and believe. It requires that we act, that we see Jesus and that we believe in him. The promise of the gospel, as stated in Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is the wonderful news of the gospel, friends, is that if anyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter where you're at today, if you repent and believe in Jesus today, you will be saved. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You can go home today with a forgiven conscience, with a clean conscience and forgiven record before God. But it requires that you humble your heart and confess your sin before him, acknowledge your rebellion, and embrace the free gift that is Christ. Again, this is something that you must do for yourself. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your parents, your friends can't do it for you. It's something each one of us must do before God. Jesus cannot just be the Savior. He must be your Savior. The reformer Martin Luther once said it like this. He said, it's one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It's quite another thing to say He is my Savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first the true Christian alone can say the second. And friends, this is the great divide. This is the watershed decision. This is the choice that is faced before each one of us. Is Are we just going to acknowledge and say, Jesus is a Savior? Or will we bow the knee and say, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord? It's a free gift this morning. And so I implore you on this Christmas Eve to not wait another day to allow this Christmas be the Christmas in which you find hope, in which you place your faith fully and completely in Jesus Christ, not trusting in any of your good deeds, not trusting in any of your record, but to realize that today that your only hope is found in Jesus Christ alone and that you might have the joyful hope that comes from those who know Jesus Christ. We have joy as followers of Christ this morning, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because we are redeemed saints of a risen Savior, that he has done everything for us, that he has saved us, he has given himself for us, and because we have embraced him, he has given us the world, he has given us eternal life, he has given us salvation. And so when, when we have Christ, we have an indestructible hope. No matter the circumstances, we are able to always have a joyful hope for the future. And friends, I don't know what, where life finds you this morning. Your circumstances may look dark. The circumstances of the world may look dark to you. But with Christ, we can have hope. No matter what happens to you, to your family, or to the world, our souls are secured in Jesus. Our eternity is secure in Him. Jesus has told us that in this world there will be trouble, there will be trial, there will be tribulation. But he said that we can take heart because he has overcome the world. And so I pray that no matter how dark the world may get for you, that you may always be able to see Jesus in that darkness. This was 
this reality is illustrated by a pastor from New York City who went to go preach in Louisiana during the Great Depression. Electricity was just coming into uh, that part of the country, and he was out in a rural church that had just one light bulb hanging from the ceiling to light up the whole sanctuary. And so there he was preaching away in this, uh, this country church with only one light bulb when in the middle of a sermon, the electricity went out. The building went pitch black, and uh, this young preacher didn't know what to do. He was kind of uh, stuttering, not sure what to say. He stumbled around until one of the elderly deacons sitting in the back of the church cried out, preach on, preacher, we can still see Jesus in the dark. I believe this illustrates a truth that each one of us can take with us this morning, that no matter how dark the circumstances, we can still see Jesus, can't we? We still have a Savior. Even when the suffering is great, we have hope because we have a Savior. Even when the evil seems to be succeeding, we can have hope because there is a Savior and His name is Jesus. This is my hope this morning. I pray this is your hope as well. And it's what the angels declared to the shepherds on that first Christmas night. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I pray that you would know the joy and the hope of knowing this Savior Christ the Lord this Christmas. And if you don't know where you stand with him, I would love to speak with you after the service. I'll be down front after we dismiss. And I'd love to have a conversation with you that you might be able to know today where you stand with him, that you might know that you have eternal life. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich passages of scripture that we looked at this morning, for the truths that Jesus indeed is our hope, that we, even though on our own, are lost and without hope, that you did not leave us in that state. Father, I pray this morning that you would help each soul who is listening this morning to take these three steps, that they would recognize how hopeless their situation is without Christ, that they would see that Jesus accomplished salvation for sinners, and that they would personally rely upon Christ to be their Savior and their Lord. Oh, Father, we need your sovereign work, your mighty power to break into each one of our hearts and give us the assurance of the hope that we have in Christ. I pray that you would do that unto your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.